Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And today on Real Life Real Estate, it's question and answer week. Although I am now going to explore getting that Charlie Brown Thanksgiving music as our permanent our permanent theme music because that's we awesome. Need to do a disclaimer, so yeah, I'm, I, I, I suspect there might be some kind of copyright thing going on there, but you know, we can ask. Anyway, it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing, which means it is your week to uh, ask any questions that you have been mulling over, thinking about, just came up, can't come up with an answer to, need a second perspective on, and uh, anything about real estate investing is up for grabs today in terms of questions. You can call them in here in the greater Cincinnati area at 513-772-9658. You can also uh, call toll-free from any place in the country if you happen to be listening to us live streaming on wmkvfm.org at 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. There's only one extra rule today, which is you have to include something that you're thankful for when you call in or email in your questions. I can tell you that I am thankful for the many, many people who over the years have listened to, supported financially, uh, supported in terms of uh, just, you know, having it here on the station, real life real estate investing. We are in our 17th or 18th year here <laughs> doing this weird little show about how to create a small real estate investing business that, you know, let's face it, would not have made it without listener support or the support of public radio here on WMKV. And uh, every time I think about that and, you know, all the, all the other stuff that's out there on commercial radio and how this would like never get anywhere on commercial radio. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. So what are you thankful for? And what is your real estate question today on real life, real estate investing? Uh, I have some questions saved up here from prior weeks, because as you may know, you can go to askvina.com at any time and enter questions that would be answered here later. And if you happen to not be listening to the show, that's okay too, because we also have uh, all the show's podcast on iTunes as well. And sometimes one comes in after the end of the show or it comes in in between shows or it comes in and it's just off topic enough that it's not the right one for that program. Uh, so we save them up for question and answer week. And we're going to start here at the... Uh, first one, which is actually about a month old. So um, this one is from Alan in Nashville. And he says, uh, I work a full-time job. I own a house that contains rooms I rent out. I want to build a rental portfolio until I can simply afford to be a full-time landlord. I don't have a whole lot of cash, though I still have a few options using a commercial loan from a bank. Of course, I have to have seller financing opportunities mixed into my future portfolio. Everyone considers to, uh, continues to say the ways to rise above the current competitive market is to ramp up your marketing activities. I want to begin a yellow letter campaign using, and he names a, a very well-known list company. Uh, what parameters should I filter homeowners in my area by in order to find deals that work well for my goals? 
i.e. percentage of equity, pre-foreclosure, etc. So in other words, if I can sort of summarize that question, Alan, it is to what lists should I market? Or to put another way, what lists might I look at purchasing so that I can market to them? And that is a very interesting question, particularly at the moment, because as you say, the market has gotten quite competitive in the past year or so um, as uh, MLS properties have uh, dried up. They're, you know, they, they hit a very low level uh, here this year, and particularly in the distressed property um, arena that we normally deal in largely because the foreclosure rate is way down and there's just not as many bank-owned properties as there were in the past. And in the face of that, a lot of investors have started to market directly to homeowners and uh, who, who, in other words, do not have their properties listed but might be in a situation where they would like to sell fast. And in response to that, a lot of real estate agents have started sending mail to these same homeowners saying things like, you're probably getting mail from these real estate investors and what they want to do is rip you off and not pay you enough for your house and uh, turn around and sell it for a profit immediately, which of course is a misunderstanding of, or a deliberate or, or not misunderstanding of what a lot of real estate investors do. Because if, if I buy your house for $100,000 and then I put $50,000 of my own money into it and then I sell it for 210. The property wasn't worth 210 before I bought it and put $50,000 into it. But in any case, there's a lot of people getting a lot of mail in a lot of categories. Um some of the some of the lists that you named, you 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 pointed out uh pre-foreclosures for one. Uh pre-foreclosures are a very tough list unless you understand and are willing to go through the pain of short sales. Uh, th that's m probably one of the hardest hit lists in terms of how much mail are they getting. Uh, it's also, of course, a very responsive list because the, those folks, they, they're going to sell one way or another. Generally, it's either going to be at a share of sale or to someone else. But the, and it's very easy to get offers accepted by the sellers, but it is difficult to get them then accepted by the banks. I mean, that's a real specialty. And unless you are very familiar with that process and are willing to go through it and do all the things that you need to do to go through it, it's going to be a frustrating list for you. And you mentioned you have a full-time job. You got to be available to talk to the banks when they're available to talk to you. So that may not be a good list for you. Uh, the, this idea of buying lists of high equity properties is an amusing one be, for two reasons. Number one, the list companies don't actually have a list of people who have a lot of equity. What they have is a list of people who've owned their houses for a while and potentially a list that they have compared the purchase price to the tax value. And of course, we all know that the tax value doesn't necessarily mean anything. And none of that takes into account whether the folks refinanced since then or uh, the tax value is wrong or, you know, there, there's a number of it's, it's not a real high equity list in, in any case that I'm aware of. And in addition to that, why is it that real estate investors assume that just because people, somebody doesn't owe a lot on their house, that they're willing to sell it at a discount or on terms? That's, that, that's not a list that's about motivation. That's a list that, that might be about some financial situation that may or may not 
bear on whether or not it's actually a potentially good seller for you. Your goal, of course, is to find sellers who understand that they might have other options, that maybe they could get more money if they fixed up their property or if they waited longer or if they listed it for, you know, five or six months. But getting it sold fast and easily is more important to them than getting it sold for top price. I mean, that's that's the bottom line of who your seller is. So that's going to include people who are frustrated by the condition of the property, which could be somebody with bad tenants, which could be somebody who's filing an eviction. It could be somebody who's got building orders. Uh, it could also be somebody who's got some other financial situation going on in their life that makes it difficult or impossible for them to continue to own their property. Uh, and uh, people who have uh, people who are in the position of living a long way from their property. So they're, you know, they're out of town owners of some sort. All of those lists that I just named. Oh, and another real common one is um, inherited properties. All of those lists I just named are getting lots of mail right now. When I, when I talk to these folks and they say, well, I got your letter. I also got eight others from eight other people. So it is more important than it has been in a while to make sure that your message, because what we've been talking about up until now is the list, but that your message is a good message that that talks about benefits and that doesn't just say, uh, hey, I want to buy your house, sell it to me, right? Because you know, for a long time, when these folks weren't getting an email and they were desperate to sell, they would call anything. Now that they've got eight choices, which one are they going to call? So message development has become uh, more important than it has been in the past. And of course, getting your mail opened, making sure that it doesn't look like junk mail, that it um, looks like something that somebody wants to open is very, very important right now. So uh, I'm certainly not telling you not to do direct mail because you absolutely should because there's basically no other way to get it done but please don't just uh, these I get a lot of direct mail because I own properties and people you know see that I'm a landlord and they they send me letters and some of them are just they're so horrible (laughs) there's there's a postcard that I keep getting over and over and over again that I have to assume is being sold because I'm getting it from different people I have to assume that they're buying it from somewhere and it is, it's an eight-point type, fills up the entire postcard, very difficult to read, and as I, as I did read it so that I could make fun of it, the word I, as in I want to buy your house, I will make it as easy as possible, I think we could do business together, I would like to talk to you immediately about this house, the word I appears 27 times in that postcard, and the word you, as in you would benefit by doing such and so appears twice. And I just think, man, if I got that postcard and I got one where someone's actually telling me why why I as the seller would really get a lot out of this, I would probably call the other one. So thank you very much for your question, Alan. It's question and answer week on real life real estate investing. Call 877-772-9658 with your question plus something you're thankful for today. Or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I think we should have a vote. Do we like the 18-year-old music that we pulled off of some free-to-use-this-music disc 
back in the 90s or do we like the charlie brown music yeah I, I i wouldn't know what to say if it was anything else like it'd start playing and be like where am i what 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 am i supposed to say next it's real life real estate investing it's question and answer week it's the last thursday of the month where we just sort of open up the microphone to listener questions 877-772-9658 is the number to call you can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com that's a-s-k-v like in victor e-n-a at gmail.com uh, also looking for show topics for 2015. Starting to think, think about you know who to who to who to get on the air and tell you about what they're doing or what their specialty is or how to do something. And if you have a suggestion about that, you can certainly email it to askvina at gmail.com. And uh, any question you have about real estate investing, buying, managing, financing, selling, whatever is uh, fair game today, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Uh, question here from Cynthia, who does not say where she is from. How can I get in the investing arena with little capital? What are some of the avenues that I can explore? Uh, that is a great question, Cynthia. The folks who come into real estate investing tend to come into it from one of two directions. And we were actually talking about this on the show last week, if you want to listen to that podcast. Uh, either they're coming in with money that they are looking to invest in a way that they can control and get higher returns potentially than in other more passive hands-off investments. And the other direction they come in is I don't have very much capital and I am looking, I'm looking less to truly invest than I am to build a business wherein real estate is my inventory and housing is the thing that I provide. And um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to say which, which type of person is the bigger type coming into the business today if i were if i were guessing i would say it was pretty close to 50 50 at this point but traditionally real estate has been something that folks without a lot of capital could get into and uh, with knowledge control more asset than they had money to purchase okay so um there's there's actually a lot of answers to your question because um you know there's there's ways in real estate to use other people's money other people's credit other people's efforts to generate quick cash to generate like one-time paydays wholesaling is one uh we have quite a few shows in our ipod our uh, our itunes archive about different aspects of the wholesaling business retailing is one and that's where you buy, fix, and sell a property. Uh, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, you have to have all kinds of money to do that. You gotta have money to buy it, you gotta have money to fix it. It doesn't have to be your money. There's an entire industry of lenders out there called hard money lenders who exist to help people leverage that kind of deal. And then you sell the property and get your cash and now you got some cash to go do the next deal. Uh, in terms of holding on to properties, there are lots of different ways to even by rentals with minimal upfront investment, um, just owner financing type deals, uh, private lenders, partners, there's, there's all sorts of ways to uh, get the money to do that. But the, the warning that I will give you and I, that I wish someone had given me 
25 years ago, was that while it is possible to own rentals, to buy rentals without having access to a lot of money, it is not possible to continue to own and manage them without access to capital. And what I mean by that is that the houses aren't stocks. Things go physically wrong with houses and apartments, and, and, and especially when people live in them, which you sort of need to happen in order for them to generate any income for you. And the mistake that a lot of um, particularly new landlords will make is they say, look, my my the rent that I'm getting is $1,000 a month, and the payment that I have to make is only $500 a month, so I have $500 extra dollars a month to spend. And that is absolutely not true. You do not have an extra $500 a month to spend. You have maybe $200 a month to spend because you need to be setting aside a significant chunk of the income from that from that rental property to go back into the rental property, at least until such time that you have enough reserves that having three furnaces go out in one one-week period is not going to drive you into the poorhouse or empty those three houses because you can't fix them. It's it's uh, you know it's an unfortunate thing about the real estate education business that nobody ever wants to say you need cash reserves. Now you don't have to have the cash to start with, but by golly, if you bought a rental property that was making $500 a month, I would put that money aside every single month until I had five to $7,000 sitting in a bank account that I didn't even have an ATM card for. So I wouldn't be tempted to spend it because you're going to put that back into the property and little repairs and big repairs and capital expenses in times when the property is vacant and you still have to make that principal and interest payment and those tax payments and those insurance payments landlording is a long-term strategy for becoming wealthy and it absolutely works if you do it right it absolutely works as a long-term strategy for becoming wealthy it is not a short-term strategy for putting more income into your pocket so those are some suggestions for you Cynthia look into creative financing look into wholesaling uh, definitely join your local RIA association you did not say where you're from so I can't tell you what that is but that's where you can meet other people who are doing the same thing and uh, just just look at the stuff that uh, doesn't require a lot of cash and you'll be on your way. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. 877-772-9658 is the number to call. You can also send questions via email to askvina at gmail.com. Uh, also looking for suggestions for shows for the next year, topics you'd like to hear, people you'd like to hear, etc. Um, question from Tom, who is in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. He says, if you are not working with a realtor in a given area, how do you get a value on a property? So in other words, what Tom is asking is, I am looking at a property. I am trying to determine what I might be able to pay for it, but I don't know what it's worth. And I don't have a real estate agent on hand to look in MLS and tell me what other properties have sold for. Uh, best solution, Tom, is one that you might not want to hear, which is uh, you can subscribe to various what we call comping services. These are these are um, companies that that pull data from the public records 
put it in a searchable, usable format and allow you to do things like say, I am looking for all the three bedrooms within a half a mile of this house that have sold in the last six months. And you should change the criteria and they'll spit out a list. Some areas, sadly, Northern Kentucky being amongst them, are harder to find good services like this in than others because it's all it's all dependent on the quality of the public record. And unfortunately in Northern Kentucky, they have made it very difficult to get to the public records for things like sale prices in the courthouse. So uh, in some places, having a real estate agent or being a real estate agent actually is your best option. Your second best, uh, your, 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 best option where it's available is one of these comping services, but they do cost money. You have to subscribe to them. I've seen them ranging from, you know, 50 to $60 a month up to 120 or $130 a month. But if you're doing a lot of business, you're going to spend a lot of time using that comping system. So it's probably well worth it. Your um, bottom line solution, like the one that, that I've got no money, I've got no agent, is to use one of the free services online understand that the business model of those free services is not to easily allow folks like you and me to determine the value of the properties. That is not what makes them money. And they are not especially accurate. They they are easy to use, but they are not especially accurate. And they always require a second and third level of evaluation. And by that, I mean, if you go to one of these free services and you put in a property address and say, show me comps. The first comps it's going to show you is listed properties that are currently for sale because agents are paying them to do that. And those are not comps. They don't do you any good. Then you may see like an estimate of the value. Uh, do not look at that estimate of the value because it's never correct. Then you will, if you dig down a little bit more, you will actually be able to find sales of properties in the area. But it's not great. These systems are not great at making sure that the comps are approximately the same square footage, approximately the same age, uh, that they're in the same school system, uh, any of those things that you really need to know. So you can get raw data out of those services. You can then go evaluate the raw data separately and, you know, throw some away and decide that some are better than others and come up with a value that way. Uh, the problem with that system is that it is time consuming. With my subscription that I use, I can find the value of a property, you know, roughly, you know, well enough to go ahead and make an offer in five minutes or less. With one of these quote free systems, it's going to take me an hour or more. So you might want to put it on the top of your list to subscribe to one of the services that does provide this for money. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate. It is question and answer week. We're taking questions via email at askvina at gmail.com or via phone at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week as it is on the last Wednesday of every month. And uh, just looking at the calendar, and both Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve fall on Wednesdays this year. I guess we're going to be missing two shows in the next six weeks, because I don't know about you, Mike, but I am going to be here on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. (laughs) 
so this is going to be your last chance for two months to ask your questions and any question that you have about real estate investing, whether you're just getting started or have a question about a specific deal is uh, a good one to ask today. 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com is how you get in touch. And you can use uh, that email address to ask questions at any time during the month if they pop up and you're thinking, oh man, it's like three weeks until the next show and I'll forget to listen. That's okay because you can listen to us on iTunes. And um, actually I have a question here from Anna who says, I went to your iTunes account and there's only about 40 shows posted. What happened to the rest of them? Yeah, we somehow accidentally have two iTunes accounts and the old one, the ones that you're seeing are from like 2011. Uh, Search for real life real estate and you'll find another one under, I believe it's the business category that has like 200 shows on it. You could listen to me from now till your opening Christmas presents without a break if you downloaded those onto your iPhone. Not that I'm saying that that is a good or desirable thing to do, but um, there's a lot of a lot of great programs, a lot of great guests, great interviews, and uh, look for the one with like 200 on it, not the one with 41 on it. A uh, question here from Jeremy. He says. If you were calling probate leads, would you use a virtual assistant to do that, even though they are a more sensitive type of person or lead? Um, and, and Jeremy, I think, you, I think you may be misunderstanding how virtual assistants are used to, quote, call leads. Uh, we did have a show about a month ago, maybe six weeks, with Larry Goins, who was talking about uh, using virtual assistants to make outbound phone calls but you can only make outbound phone calls to people for whom you have a phone number and thus virtual assistants are typically used only when you're uh, having somebody call for instance uh, properties that are already in craigslist you wouldn't typically if you even if you bought a list of of probate properties or people who had inherited properties that list would not include phone numbers and even if it did you know I'm, I'm with you I might not actually have a virtual assistant called that particular kind of lead now the other thing that Larry talked about was inbound phone calls was all right so you've bought the list you've done the mailings and now people are calling into the number to be you know interviewed as it were and in that case, uh, I probably would have a, a well-trained virtual assistant answer that call, but there would be some kind of script that once the person said, you know, I inherited my property, my aunt passed away, whatever the case might be, that they would offer some condolences. They would not just go on to the next question if that particular thing came up. You know, they would say, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your aunt you know, something, because otherwise, I, I see what you're saying, it could become really mechanical. So are you the owner of the house? Yes, my, my beloved grandmother just passed away and left me the house. Okay, what school systems it in? You know, that, that would not be good. So would I have a well trained VA answer those calls? Yes. Would there be something in the script that said, if A happens, then say, B, <laughs> then yes, the answer to that is also yes. Question from Ken, 
And see, this is the problem of not, not putting them through the askmina.com website is they're not forced to tell me where they are from. Although this is another question. It's general enough that I guess it doesn't matter that much. Uh, Ken says, Vina, I listened to your webinar on making a $100 investment in an IRA go o- go to over $50,000 in one year. Well, it was actually a $500 investment to over $50,000, but I won't. I won't nitpick on that. Um, you give very example, various examples of using $100 deposits to do these deals. My question is, how does the person you sell to come up with the money to satisfy the real estate contract? If my IRA company is supposed to get a certain dollar amount, let's say $15,000, and I give them a $100 deposit, then how does the $15,000 get to my IRA company if I am only investing $100? Is this considered an option to buy rather than a normal real estate contract? I'm confused about how the $100 works with the custodian for the IRA. Well, Ken, I'm a little confused by your question here. I think what you're asking is, how does one put up a $100 on a contract to buy a house for say $15,000 and then close on that $15,000 deal without coming up with the other $14,900. I'm going to assume that that is your question. And I think what is confusing you is adding in this, this idea that an IRA can do it. Now, yes, an IRA can do it. And we have several shows back in the podcasts with various IRA experts on why the IRA can do it and some of the different things that it can do and so on. But think about it this way, Ken. Your IRA is not you. Your IRA is is a legal person with a separate existence from you. So it, it wouldn't matter whether you were doing it or the IRA were doing it or Mike here were doing it. It's 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 we're not we're not going to mix these things up. We're not going to mix up like I am my IRA or something like that. The way that one of the ways in which this could be done would be, um, let's say that uh, Mike wants to sell his house for fifteen thousand dollars, and I sign an agreement with him, a purchase agreement that says, Mike, I'll give you fifteen thousand dollars for your house. I'll do that sometime in the next 30 days and I will give you a hundred dollar deposit in order to, you know, secure that. Like you're, you're, you, you sign the contract, I'll give you a hundred bucks and I'll close sometime in the next 30 days for $15,000. I now go walk over to the office here where George is and I say, Hey George, weren't you looking for a house in Indiana? I have one that I can sell you for $20,000. And George says, Oh, that sounds like an awesome deal. And I say, well, So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just assign you this contract that I have with Mike where I can buy it for $15,000. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like to give, I'd like you to give me 5,100 bucks because I already gave Mike a hundred. So really you only owe him 14,9. And then the other 5,000 will will be the contract assignment fee. And I will just turn over all my rights in this contract and you can go buy it from Mike. And George says, that sounds awesome. So he writes a check for $5,100. The only difference in doing that with my IRA is instead of me having the contract with Mike, my IRA has the contract with Mike. And instead of George get writing a check to me for $5,100, he writes a check to my IRA for $5,100. And the way it works with a custodian for the IRA is all this is done through a series of what's called directions of investment. And the $100 that comes from my IRA, there's a direction of investment that says, hey, IRA company, I would like you to send $100 to Mike because I am buying his house and this is earnest money. And here's the contract. And then 
when George buys it from me, I say, George, write the question, write the write the checkout to my IRA company, and it gets sent to the IRA company along with the the assignment of contract, and it says right on the assignment of contract what the fifty one hundred dollars is for. Um, it, it's interesting as I have talked to more and more people about IRA investing how much the substitution of the IRA for the person themselves just like completely confuses people. Like I don't, I don't, I don't, I know how I would give Mike a hundred dollars and I know how I would get money from George, but I don't understand how the IRA company does or how my IRA does. And the answer is that's what the custodian's for is to walk you through all of that and all of the paperwork and so on. And be aware that it does slow things down, that there's an IRA custodian who's actually writing and receiving the checks. I've, I've gotten into the habit of asking for any money I need seven to 10 days before the actual closing might happen because it does sometimes take a while to grind through the process. Uh, another way, and this, this may be the example that you're, you're talking about as it was one that I talked about on the webinar you're referencing, uh, is um, what if I actually wanted to own Mike's house? What if what if I didn't want to sell it? What if I I really wanted to hold onto it for rental property? I could sign the contract to buy for fifteen thousand. My IRA could give Mike the hundred dollars, and then I could walk over to the office where George is, and I could say, George, can you loan me fourteen thousand nine hundred dollars so that I can buy Mike's house and hold onto it for a rental, and I'll, I'll give you a nice rate of interest and you can, um, you know, have a mortgage against the property. Although because it's my IRA, it's going to be what's called a non-recourse mortgage that says all you can get if I default is the house. You can't come after me personally. And that's not, you know, I would not like, it's not my preference to do it that way. That's what the government demands. And George says, wow, you're going to give me 8% interest. That's awesome. Let's do it. Your IRA can have loans. If you can find someone who will give you what's called a non-recourse loan, and of course that's going to have to mean it's a, it's a very good deal for them and that they wouldn't mind having the house back if that's what it came to. So there's any, anything that you can do, your IRA can do. It's just a matter of some extra paperwork. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Please send in your questions to askvina at gmail.com or give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing, where it is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. You can call in your questions with at 877-772-9658 or you can email them to askvina at gmail.com. Are you ready for this middle America? Realty Track just published its top 12 markets with fastest accelerating home price appreciation. And almost every major metropolitan area in Ohio made that list this year. This is the top 12 in terms of home price appreciation. Now, it might be argued that the reason that Dayton, Ohio is number two on the home price appreciation list is because there was no place to go but up. And Cincinnati is number three because we just lagged the rest of the country in increasing home prices 
Cleveland made the list at number four. Akron at number five. Toledo at six. And then way down here at number 12 is Columbus, Ohio, with expected house price appreciation. Or actually, this is actual house price appreciation of 14% year over year. Other areas that made the list were the McAllen, Mission, Texas area, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Honolulu, Hawaii, then Nashville, Davidson, Murfreesboro, MSA, and then Charlotte, Gastonia, and Concord, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Wow, that's uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, back to the questions here, though, on real life real estate investing. I've uh, got a question here from, and I now need to flip back to my box of real estate questions. All right. Yeah. Well, while we're doing that, let's talk to Roger in San Antonio. Roger, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Roger. I, I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And I am so thankful that I live in this country at this time. And I'm so thankful that there are good people like you who are willing to share their knowledge with people like me. Well, thank you very much, Roger, and uh, uh, amen to the living in this country, because, you know, what we do isn't even possible in a lot of other countries. They just don't even, they don't even have the, the rule of law in place to do things like invest in real estate and change, change, change your position in life. Uh, did you have a question, Roger? I do not. I just enjoy your your uh, materials and so keep it going <laughs> well roger i i greatly appreciate the thanks and uh appreciate all the listeners especially those who take out a minute on thanksgiving eve and uh, give us a call so thanks thanks, thanks. bye thanks a lot roger uh okay question here from jc in las vegas that's gonna like make my whole day like for the rest of the day i'm gonna be telling people well you're not gonna believe what happened on the show tonight some guy just called to thank me that that's awesome uh, he says, how should I decide between pursuing single-family homes versus multifamilies and building a rental portfolio? What are the trade-offs? What are the differences in, fan in management, finance, et cetera? And why choose one versus another? And this question comes in five minutes before the end of the show. We could do an entire show debating the pros and cons of single-families versus multifamilies. And, and we could then further subdivide it. And say single families versus big multifamilies versus like a two or a three family. Um, you know, it's it, it, some some of the differences are literal market and mathematical differences. You know, um, uh, in my market here in the greater Cincinnati area, it is somewhat unusual to find a four family property that does not have a single furnace and a single water supply. In other words, you you as the landlord are going to pay at least the heat and the water and sewer, <clears throat> which obviously negatively impacts your uh, overall income from the property and is an expensive thing to cure. Could you take out that one boiler and put in four separate you know, gas force air furnaces and all the duct work and everything that's required. Sure, you could with an investment of maybe $15,000 for that four family. Could you submeter the water? Yes, with an investment of probably $5,000. And that doesn't, of course, necessarily, you know, submeter the sewer depending on, on where you live. 
So, you know, some of, some of the pros and cons are, they can be outlined and you can say, look, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get more rent from a, a three family gross, but you might not get more net because of utility costs and because of um, uh, higher management costs and so on. Some of the differences are where the debate would happen. If we had, if we had two people sitting here uh, and one was a single family home fan and one was a small multifamily fan, some of what you would hear from them would be more along the lines of what makes me as a business person unhappy and what makes me as a business person happy. Uh, for instance, it is often said that in particularly in small multifamilies, you tend to get more conflicts between the tenants. If there's a two family or a three family, you end up with more situations where the tenant in unit one just cannot stand the unit tenant in unit three and is constantly calling you and saying she parked in my spot. She's you know, her, her kids stomp on the floor above me. She leaves her laundry in the basement. And that that sort of, of hassle uh, might make the single family fan a single family fan instead of a multifamily fan. And then the multifamily fan might say, well, you know what? If my tenant in unit three does move out, I only have one vacancy out of three. If your tenant moves out, you have a 100% vacancy rate. So there's a lot of pros and cons that that sort of weigh into those decisions. And, and, and perhaps at some point early next year, we will have a debate. We'll get a couple of people in here who uh, are experts in and investors in and fans of one or the other uh, to actually talk about it for an hour, because that's what it would take is talking about it for an hour. I can tell you that until you get to the level of bigger than a four family, the financing isn't a whole lot different uh, between singles and multis. You can, you know, Fannie Mae will buy loans on one, two, three, and four families, but you get, get above that and you're in, into a different kind of financing. Um, are there really differences in tenants? Eh, I, I, I think that that might be more perception than it is reality. Is there different in man difference in management? Uh, absolutely, there are certain things that own that uh, tenants in single family homes are just assumed to do and do that tenants in three families don't, right? Mow the lawn. Who mows the lawn in a three family? The owner or the tenant that the owner pays to do it or the service person that the owner pays to do it? Who mows the lawn in a single family home? The tenant, right? <laughs> just, how many single family home, rental homes do you know where the owner mows the lawn? So there, there are there are definitely pros and cons. Um, you know, I could take both sides of that debate happily and uh, um, convince you of either one, I think you need to look at the look at them yourself and decide for yourself which one is going to be uh, the better one for you. I think we have time for one final question, maybe. Uh, this one is from Paul, who lives in Rochester, New York. Wow, but it's cold and snowy up there right now. Uh, the question is, I have a very simple question. I just want to know, do you or do you not allow dogs in your rental properties? It seems like 75% of the people who apply to rent my single family homes own dogs. I have never rented to them before, but I am reconsidering that if it seems like a good idea. Um, well, you know what, Paul? Uh Again, we could debate the dog question all day long. I think one very important thing that you need to do before you make this decision is you need to call your insurance agent and you need to find out if there are certain dogs or certain breeds of dogs that the insurer will not insure against. 
typically there is a list and it includes any dog that was bred or trained for fighting. Often pit bulls are on that list, Rottweilers, Chows, um, there's the, the German Shepherds, uh, dogs that, you know, are thought to bite people. Some insurance companies will actually drop you if they find out that you have a dog like that in one of your units. So other than those dogs, you know that uh, dogs do cause damage to houses. The best way to find out if a particular dog is a problem is to go look at where he lives now. See what see what that house smells like and looks like and if there's claw marks in the basement door and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there is absolutely no problem other than in the case of service animals with you allowing dogs at a higher rent and a higher deposit. So that is something that you could consider as well. So thank you for your question, Paul, and for all the questions from all the listeners and to Roger in San Antonio. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.